Bibles with me this morning. Back in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5, we continue to consider Peter's instruction to elders to shepherd the flock of God. We spent a few weeks now discussing this, probably because it's just something that the Lord has weighed heavy on me as he's called me as shepherd and, and uh, he's been teaching me through this and it's just a, a delight and privilege to be able to share uh, that burden. And, you know, it's interesting to me as we consider what it means to be a shepherd. When you, when you look at shepherds kind of in history and in, in cultures around the world and, and uh, you know, shepherds aren't necessarily the most uh, well thought of dirty and poor and they don't socialize a whole lot and they're not really looked at you know, in the highest degree of respect and, and uh, but yet it is uh, shepherds that God has used as an example of what it means to lead to God, especially when it comes to his people, his flock. And uh, in the Old Testament we see shepherds being referred to as God's priests and, and kings. And uh, even though uh, the Israelites were, were a shepherding people, even in their own culture, after a time, it got to be as their society evolved, that even the shepherds were kind of outcasts in their own society. They were necessity, but uh, not necessarily very highly respected. And uh, you go all the way back to when uh, Israel was in the land of Egypt, or coming in the land of Joseph goes to Egypt, and and when he's bringing his family in, he tells Pharaoh, or he tells his family, he says, when Pharaoh asks you, what you tell them you're shepherds? And he says, because shepherds are loathsome in the eyes of the Egyptians. He says, but that's, that's okay, because he's going to give you your own life if you keep separate from everybody else. And, and so he uses it to their advantage. But you know, God just has a way of taking the lowly and the despised and the weak things of this world and using it to demonstrate his grace and his glory. And, uh, and this is the case of the shepherds. He took a lowly shepherd and made it and made him king over Israel. Um, Moving into the New Testament, shepherds were the first ones to see the newborn king. The Messiah was declared first to shepherds and they were the ones to behold him first. And then God uses the imagery of a shepherd to represent what it means to lead God's people. We see that in the New Testament as he calls the elders of the church pastors, which is a, uh, a term that comes from a Greek word which means actually to pasture or to shepherd. And uh, that's what a pastor is, is a, is a shepherd. And being a shepherd of God's flock is, I believe, is one of the highest callings and privileges, as well as one of the greatest responsibilities in all the world. Very little, I think, could be compared to God's calling to shepherd his people. And it's not something to be taken lightly, but we have to take with devotion and in accordance with God's will. So as we look back at 1 Peter chapter 5, we see a little bit of that revelation of God's will for shepherds. I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning as we read from God's holy and perfect word. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of 
Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of the Lord. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you for this instruction. May you help us, Lord, to understand and apply it. That you might continue to be glorified and we might continue to grow in grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Peter begins this whole section in, in uh, instructing on shepherding the flock, on being overseers and, and elders in the church. And he, he begins to encourage those who are called to that role by setting himself as an example to them, even as he calls them to be examples to the flock. He reminds them that I am your fellow elder. I, I've experienced the things you're experiencing. I've experienced the sufferings on Christ's behalf. I've been where you are and I want you to understand and know that I understand your, your hurts and I understand your, your difficulties and, and I just want to encourage you not to get your eyes so focused on your circumstances that you forget your calling. He says, pursue the calling that God has given you to shepherd the flock. So we see Peter's example there in verse number one, himself being called to be a shepherd by Christ and is, is he takes that calling on his life and he extends it to the leaders of the churches that he's speaking to and he tells them in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you. And in so doing, he gives us the model for shepherding. The model for leading, that is, the shepherd. Of course, our great shepherd, our chief shepherd, is God himself and our Lord Jesus Christ. They are our shepherd and, and we looked at the model for shepherding as, as it pertains to uh, what it means for God to be our shepherd and for us to follow his example as, as he uh, feeds us and strengthens us and protects us. And we recognize that those same aspects of the shepherd apply to those who have been given responsibility in church to lead, to, to uh, feed and strengthen and protect the flock, recognizing that it is God's flock and not our own. And then as we get into the latter part of verse 2 and on through verse number 4, I want to speak to you this morning about the manner of shepherding. As the Lord speaks to us, not simply of, of the action that's required to shepherd, but of the attitude that we're to have in taking on this role and the responsibility that shepherds are given the way that they approach this, this, uh, this work that they've been called to. And so he says there, let's look at verse number two. He says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. So this is this is the work. The work of shepherding is to exercise oversight. We've talked about this before, but in, you know, in the New Testament, there's three primary words that refer to church leaders. There is um, a word that's sometimes translated as bishops or overseers. The same word that we fiscal from, but it's, it's the word that's translated often overseers and bishops. There's the word um, 
shepherd or pastor, um, translated different ways in different contexts. And, uh, and then, of course, there's the word for um, elder, which is Ross, and, and those three words um, dominate the thing and are really interchangeable when it comes to speaking about church leaders. In fact, all three of those words in some form occur in this passage. Of course, only the, the noun form for elders occurs here, but the verbs for overseers and the verb for shepherds occur in this passage as we're looking at. And as he tells us, as elders, we are to, to shepherd, let's carry out the responsibilities of the pastor. And to exercise oversight, carrying out the responsibilities of, of an overseer, which really are just descriptions of what it means to be God's leaders in the church. And so it, it, this idea of oversight is this, it's not this one of, of just simply uh, of simple, of just leading, but it's it's actually examining. It's it's looking out for, it's watching over. And then from that, and from that examination, from gaining understanding of what's going on in the flock, what's going on among the people, and then seeking to lead them through that, just as the shepherd leads the flock. And we talked about that. The oversight comes from giving the, from feeding the flock the word of God, from encouraging them and strengthening them in their walk, and from protecting them from false doctrine. And so that is what oversight pertains to. But what I want to talk to you about this morning primarily is not, is not what we're going to do. Because I think we covered that pretty well last week when we talked about the, the model for shepherding and, and being God himself. We'll look at Psalm 23. But the, the, the manner, the attitude in which we approach this action. And the first thing that I want you to see in this, in this passage is that a shepherd is to approach the responsibilities submissively. Look what he says here. He says, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. You see, a shepherd's first responsibility is to submit to God's will and word in leading God's church. It's not about what the shepherd wants, it's not about what the pastor wants, it's not about what the church leader wants, what the elder wants, it's about what God wants. And, and his responsibility is to, is to seek out God's will from God's word and then apply it to the body. We, the shepherd must be submissive to God's leadership. Since the flock isn't his, it's the father's, right? It's God's flock, so we need to do things God's way. So if we're going to do things God's way, we need to submit to God's word, because that's where we, we find, we find uh, God's will in God's, in God's direction. So we're told that, that care is given to the sheep is not to be under compulsion, but voluntarily. Now, a lot of times when we think of, of compulsion, uh, we think of kind of coercion. We think of somebody's being compulsed to do something, they're being forced to do. And that's not really what's, what's going on here. That, what, the word that's being used here by Peter for compulsion, it's a word that, that really speaks more of a kind of a, uh, a grudging obligation. That's the idea. It's like... You know, there, there, there are church leaders out there, there's pastors out there, there's elders out there that they just do it because they feel like they just they have to. They just feel like, you know, not, and I, I don't mean they feel like they have to because God called them and they feel that passion, that burden, but they just, they feel an expectation from people. And unfortunately, that's not what ought to motivate someone to, to lead and to pastor and to serve in that capacity in the church. You shouldn't do it just because there's an expectation. You shouldn't do it just because you've been hired for the job. In fact, one of the uh, 
one of the uh, word study dictionaries that I was using, speaking of this word in this context in particular, uh, of this word constraint, uh, he says, it says, no one should be a pastor because he's hired to be one, but because he has been called of God to be one whether he is paid or not. You know, the decision to pastor is one that says, well, I think that would be a good job. I think I'll do that. The decision to pastor, you know, it, it shouldn't be driven by that idea of, of career. It's, it's an idea of calling. And, and, and it's not one that can be, and it's not one that should be, rather, influenced by, by pressure from the church because of fear of financial repercussions. But unfortunately, all too often, that does happen in churches. Because people want the pastor to do this or to not do that, and then they act or respond in ways to threaten financial repercussions if things don't go their way. But you know, the pastor is not called to work for the church. The pastor is called to work for the Lord. That's his primary responsibility. And so if, if we're not to, to work under compulsion, then we need to be free to follow God's leading in God's direction from God's word. It says that instead of, instead of being under compulsion, which is neither God-honoring nor biblical, it should be done voluntarily. The word carries the idea of with commitment and with intentionality. That is, that is what it means to, to provide oversight voluntarily, to be committed to it and to do it intentionally. And it says, according to the will of God. Actually, the, the word will, the will of, is added for clarity here. The, the Greek literally is according to God, which simply tells us that in leading God's church, you do it according to God. According to God, what does that mean? Well, it means according to all that God is, according to his character, according to his will, according to his revelation. According, and so we understand that to do it according to who God is means to do it according to God's will. And so as Peter's writing this, I, I think he's he's thinking somewhat of some some instruction that he was that he had remembered that Jesus gave um, as Jesus was talking about about shepherding and himself being the good shepherd, and, and he didn't want didn't want the leaders to think that, that money was the primary motivation. We talked about compulsion here and talked about voluntarily. And, and in John 10, 11, and 13, and I think Peter has this in mind as he's speaking to us here. Jesus said this, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand it is not concerned about the sheep. He just hired for a job. I actually like the word, the King James uses the word hireling there instead of hired man. And I like that. Um, God doesn't want hirelings in the church. He doesn't want people there just trying to collect a paycheck. He doesn't, but you know, understand this it's, it's the attitude of the church as well as the attitude of the leader. And so, so God expects his shepherds to submit to his will, to his desire according to his purposes, voluntarily, willingly, and readily providing oversight according to God. That's what it means to serve submissively. 
pastors are called to serve submissively. They're also called to serve honestly. He, he continues on at the end of verse 2. He says, None for sordid gain, but with eagerness. So pastors shouldn't only not serve under compulsion because they're simply making a living, but they shouldn't seek to manipulate their position for personal gain. And unfortunately, we see we see that happening in, in different places. Well, let's let's talk about what this means here for a minute. So this this word that's translated sort of gain, sorted gain, it's a word that refers to manipulating circumstances for personal gain. That's what I said. So it's what we're not supposed to do. So now some will some will interpret this and look at that and say, well, if the pastor's supposed to supposed to just be willing to work for free and, and he's not supposed to be concerned about money, then, then we really don't really need to pay him that much. We don't need to do that. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what this passage is saying. It's not really, Peter's not really talking about the, the care of the pastor that the church is responsible for. We see that back in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The apostle Paul says, listen, listen, I set aside my right to receive the care that you owe me as, as a leader of the church. He says, but listen, he says, in 1 Corinthians 9, 14, he says, those who preach the gospel ought to get their living from the gospel. And so there's a responsibility for the church to take care of those who are called to preach. Not because they're coming to work for you, but because they're coming to work for God to guide you in his way and it's true. But again, that's not what Peter's dealing with. But we sometimes we have a tendency to take scripture and manipulate it and make it say things it doesn't say. And so we need to be careful about how we approach scripture. And so so while money's not to be a motivation that drives our service, it, sh it most certainly should not compromise our devotion or our morality. But unfortunately, as, as, as it goes, and if you read the news and you follow things that are going on around the world and in churches in particular, it just breaks your heart to see pastor after pastor failing to heed the warnings given to us in 1 Peter 5. I read just a few weeks ago of a pastor over in Texas who was arrested for embezzling over $800,000 from the church. I mean, how, how do you miss over three quarters of a million dollars for, I mean, I don't know what the time period was in this specific place, but it was just unbelievable. But regardless, he fell to the temptation of greed, to the temptation of financial benefit, he fell to temptation. And the reality is, is just because someone's called to a position doesn't mean they're immune to temptation. They're still human. We're all still human. We all still have flaws. We all still deal with temptation. Which is why Peter gives this instruction. Because he recognizes that there, there's temptation. And we need to overcome. That's why we're called to deal honestly. But this word that's translated as sort of gain, it doesn't, it's not exclusive to financial gain. It can also refer to things like acceptance and, and popularity and, and those types of things, which are also temptations for pastors. Because pastors want to be accepted. They want to, they want to grow big churches. They want, to, they want to do things that are pleasing to people. But as soon as we get our eyes focused on pleasing people and being accepted to people, Tracks us from being true to being focused on Christ, then we've gotten off track and we violated the principle that Peter is leading or giving to us here. 
And unfortunately, in, in too many churches, what happens is in the name of pleasing people, in the name of being acceptable, in the name of, of being relevant, the gospel is all too often compromised for the sake of popularity. And the gospel is, is dumbed down, and it's, it's weakened. We don't want to talk about sin. We don't want to talk about the blood of Christ. And we don't want to, we don't want to talk about those things that are offensive to people. But the reality is, is who would you rather offend? Would you rather offend people or would you rather offend Christ? The primary responsibility of a shepherd is to submit to Christ, to do his will. Shepherds of God's flock must be men of integrity, honestly dealing with personal finances and the finances of the church and with their responsibility of overseeing God's word. 2 Timothy 2.15 reminds us, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We must never compromise on God's word Amen. for the sake of popularity. We must not compromise our integrity for the sake of personal gain, but rather we should serve with eagerness. It seems a strange contrast there, contrast honesty and eagerness. But if you think about it for just a moment, what is, what is eagerness for traffic? It's action, right? It's, it's willingness, it's readiness to do the work that God's called you to do. And I think what Peter's doing for us here is painting us a picture of, of the motive of, in, at least in part, the motivation for which a pastor leads a church. If we're not to be thinking about financial gain, we're not to be thinking about popularity, we're not to be thinking about just growing, simply growing the church um, just for the sake of growth, we're not to be thinking about all these things that make us look good. And what are we to think about? We think about who Christ is. And what he's done for us. I think that's what it means to approach service with eagerness, with passion. It's to recognize the grace of the gospel. It's to recognize where we were as a people and what Christ has done for us. I mean, if you just, just think about your own life. Think about your own life. Think about the, the people around you, the, the family that you have or friends. And, and you begin to, and it doesn't take long for you to recognize that, you know, life is hard. Right? Life, it's, it's full of struggles. It's full of disappointment. It's full of temptation. It's full of heartache. It's full of hard things. There's a lot of hard things that we have to endure in this life. Order. Why is life so hard? It's called sin. We live in a world that is cursed with sin. We live with the temptation of sin in our life. And all too often we give in to that temptation. And and the reality is, is because of sin and because of that, we, we are a fallen people, separated from the love of God. In the midst of our difficulties, we're tempted to lie to make ourselves look better than we are. We're, we're tempted to cheat that we might achieve more as receive greater recognition. We're tempted to put others down and attempt to justify ourselves and to get the things that we want. These are all things that come from living in a sin-cursed world. And no matter how good we try to be, 
We've all messed up. We all do things we know we're not we know we ought not to do. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 7 20 states plainly for us. He says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. It's pretty straightforward. It's the reality of where we are as people and who we are as people. But in the midst of all of that, in the midst of all of that sin, in the midst of all of that brokenness, in the midst of all of that difficulty, God had pity on us. God looked down on us with love and compassion, knowing that we were never going to get it right. We were never going to be the same. We were never going to pull ourselves up or pull ourselves out. He says, you know what? I'm going to take care of it. And I'm going to send my perfect and holy and righteous son into the world to become a man, to live a perfect and holy and righteous life, to fulfill the law, and then to die in your place so that your sins can be taken and that you can be brought back into a relationship with you. That's the gospel. That's what God said. Why would we ever want to distort that for the sake of pleasing people? There is no more beautiful truth in all the world than that God loved us so much that he sent his only son into the world to die in our place, to forgive us of sins, and to give us a family for all eternity. That is what God has done for us. First John 3 wants to see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. That's the motivation for serving Christ. That's the reality. That's the outcome of the gospel. That God has called us children as we place our faith in Christ and as we come to Him for forgiveness. You see, Jesus didn't just come and die, but He rose again. And so the third day when Jesus came back to life, He says, listen, I told you that I was going to pay for your sin. He says, now I'm showing you that it's paid for because I've overcome death. I've overcome the power of sin by defeating him. And he's promised us that life through faith in him. You see, the shepherds of God, we're called to herald that truth. That's the primary thing that we're given to do. It's to herald the truth of the gospel. To let it direct us, to let it influence, to let it inform us, guide us, as we seek to direct God's flock. We do it based on the truth of the gospel. And the glory of salvation is given for us to passionately pursue obedience to God's calling on our life. So that we keep our focus on Christ and our hearts are not led astray by the temptations of the world. Honestly serving Christ. Submissively serving Christ. And humbly serving Christ. Look at verse number 3. Nor yet is boarding it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. This is a picture of humility. And I hope you're recognizing as we go through these characteristics that these are not just independent characteristics, but they kind of overlap and complement one another. They're not, they don't just stand on their own. Everything God tells us to be and to do overlaps one another, reinforces each other. And that's what we see here. That <clears throat> As we're told not to lord over those allotted to our charge, but to but proving to be examples. 
So Peter says, listen, you've been allotted care for these of God's children. God's flock has been allotted to your care. Not for you to be the Lord. Because there's only one Lord. That's Jesus Christ. There's only one head of the church. That's Jesus Christ. We're not the Lord of that doesn't mean that, the, that Christ hasn't bestowed any authority on his under shepherds, but the, the issue here isn't that of authority, but attitude. See, clearly elders and pastors are called by God and affirmed by the church, are given oversight and authority to guide and direct the flock, each holding the other accountable to the principles and instructions of God's word, which is the only authority which we're given comes from God's word. All authority for faith and practice comes from the word of God. Not from self-revelation, not from self-preservation, and not from self-correction. It's God's word alone. And the Bible encourages that, that the flock be submissive to the leadership that is given to it. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. But again, Peter's not speaking of authority. And I want to mention that because we need to keep everything in balance. But what's, but what's Peter concerned with? Not establishing authority, but establishing the attitude in which that authority is carried out. And the attitude which is, which is carried out there, we shouldn't be concerned about exercising our will and building our kingdom, but submitting, again, submitting to God to build His kingdom by humbly Working as a servant leader among God's people. It's God's love. It's God's love. And shepherds that seem to carry out that responsibility must do so in humility, listening to godly counsel and biblical insight, serving as an example to. When Jesus taught in the Gospels, he taught us to love our neighbors ourselves. Right? He taught us to care for others. The Apostle Paul tells us that we're to treat others as better than ourselves. And to look out not only for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. And listen, Paul wasn't speaking to the leaders, he was speaking to everybody. But that's kind of the point that Peter's making. Because everything that comes as direction for a leader is meant to be an example to the flock, but it also applies to the flock. And so, you know, Jesus had, had taught us in Luke 6, where you want to treat others the same way you want them to treat you. We call that the golden right? This is especially applicable to those who are put in leadership positions. You don't lord over, you don't down and assert your authority over but you love them, you guide them, you take care of them, you walk alongside them. That doesn't mean doing everything that everyone asks, but it does mean taking into consideration the of others and working together to serve Christ and accomplish his mission. It's the call to serve leadership. I've got a whole sermon on serving leadership. Are you all ready? Buckle down. We don't have time. 
to, to get into all that it means to be a servant leader. And beginning to get a glimpse of what that means from this passage. Peter gives us the, the imagery of shepherding and he talks about the attitude in which we're to uh, approach that the exercise of oversight and, and humility and, and submissively and honestly. There's one, there's one more one more truth that I'll be sharing with you this morning before we close, and that comes to us out of verse number four. Having looked at the manner of shepherding, I want to talk about a little bit more about the motivation of shepherding. And this ties in with some of what we've already talked about. Let's look at verse one four. It says, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown. Peter is saying, listen. Keep your eyes focused on Christ because he's coming again. And when he comes, he has, he's going to hold you accountable. And he's going to recognize you for the work that you've done. And if you, guess what, if you've been faithless, he's going to hold you accountable. But if you've been faithful, he has rewards for you. And this really ties in with the eagerness that Peter's already mentioned. Because if we're passionate about the gospel and what Christ has done for us, this just comes naturally. Because the more passionate we are for the gospel, the more passionate we are for Christ, and we're looking to please Him. And the picture of receiving the crown really is that of desiring recognition for a job well done. When he talks about this crown, he's not talking about a kingly crown. You know, we read the word crown and we think, you know, gold and stuff. That's not really the word here. The word that's used here speaks more of a, of a, of a garland-type crown that was awarded in, in athletic competition. For when the athlete would win the competition, they would give them this thing of like the Julius Caesar-type crown with the, with the greenery and stuff and, and set it on their head. And, and, but what we think, even thinking about that, when an athlete competes in a game, is it really that they covet the trophy? I mean, they cut the, the, the award that they're going to get, or is it the recognition that the reward represents? It's the recognition, right? That's what's to motivate not just leaders, but Christians to service. It's the recognition that Christ has promised at his return. He said, for those that are faithful, he you will receive an unfading crown even the fact that it's called the crown of glory tells us it's about recognition. Because what is glory? It's, it's praise, right? It's recognition. It's, it's, it's the recognition of, of a job well done. That's the glory that he's talking about. So when Christ returns, he's going to provide for those who are faithful. He's going to provide them recognition for a job well done. And I love the fact that he calls it an unfading crown. He says, because the reality is, is that the recognition that Christ gives us at his return is not something that just happens once. And then so the recognition for a job well done is something that carries on through eternity. It's something that carries on through, throughout the, the, the rest of our existence. Just as all the promises that he's given us towards eternity, all the future grace that he's promised, all the future uh, love that he's given to us and that he's promised to us is, is that which extends to all time. And that recognition of, of Christ telling us, well done, good and faithful servant. It's not something that just happens in a moment, but it's something that continues to be recognized in us through Christ, even on into eternity. All the promises of 
Christ and salvation are those which are reserved for us, which will not fade away. So our primary motivation in serving Christ is simply to be pleasing to Him. That's what, it, that's what He's talking about. Our motivation is to be pleasing to Him because of all that He's done. And because of all that He's done, He's called us, He's called those who lead His flock as examples to do so in such a way as to reflect Him, to reflect His character, to reflect His glory. Leaders are called to serve in submission to God's will because all believers are called to live in submission to God's will. Understanding that God always knows what's best and is always working for our good and for His glory. Leaders are called to serve honestly so that others will learn that while honest, that honesty and integrity are not always the easiest thing to do, they are the most powerful declaration of faith and demonstration of love for Christ. So honesty and integrity help us to show the world that Christ is worth our time and our energy and our effort. You are called to serve humbly as servant leaders, not thinking more highly of themselves than the opportunities of their own, because Christ has commanded each and every one of us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Being an example. Every instruction, though directed towards church leaders in this context, is meant to trickle down to the law. That's the whole, whole point of being an example. Christ is our great example, but he always raises up leaders to be help us to do what he's called us to be and to do. Perhaps today we can talk about the manner of shepherding and the motivation for shepherding. Maybe the Lord is speaking to your heart, moving you to a greater responsibility in serving this church. Maybe he's speaking to you about what you have to do. Maybe he's speaking to you and encouraging you to, to be a better servant we're not all called to the same service, but we're all called to service. And we all have to recognize that in serving, that there are responsibilities in that calling. Or maybe perhaps this morning as we've been studying through this, you've come to recognize that your desire to serve or even your desire for Christ is not what it ought to be. What do you want to name that right to? What do you need? come to Christ for the first time, whether you need to come to Him again, whether you need to strengthen and encourage Him. He's ready and He's willing to hear you, to receive you, to forgive you, and to fulfill you. He is worthy of all that we have. And whatever the Lord may be speaking to your heart and
expect us to be shepherds. Expect us to care for, direct, in accordance with God's word. Expect us to do the things in, in walking with you, in encouraging you, in strengthening you. Expect us to be God's servants and God's shepherds in accordance with God's love. And wherever the Lord may take you, hold that expectation and hold the vision. Let's pray. Father, we come to the end of this section of shepherding the flock. Lord, I'm just overwhelmed with the responsibility, but also probably the enormity of trust that you've given to me and to others, Lord, that you've called to, to be leaders amongst your people. Father, I'm grateful. Thank you.